0: Last week, in one of the worst child abuse cases to come before an Irish court in recent years, three men and two women from Munster were jailed for seriously abusing and exploiting five young children. The children's father and mother, two of their uncles and an aunt, were found guilty of all but one of the 78 charges against them, which included sexual assault and rape. The judge in the case called their crimes the most profound breach of trust a human being can commit against their children. I'm Sarah Chapalock, and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, we hear the story of the Munster child abuse case from the reporter who covered it and ask, What does the future hold for these children who were abused and neglected for so long? And a warning for our listeners today's episode does contain detailed descriptions of the abuse and exploitation of children. Isabel Hayes is a court reporter who has covered the Munster abuse case for the Irish Times. Isabel, Can you take us back to when this case first began? How and when were social services alerted to the fact that there were problems
1: inside this household? August 2014 was when the social worker who gave evidence at the trial was assigned to the family. At that point, there was one kind of case or file open on them. This was because the eldest child had run away from school. And I think the principal followed him home and was so concerned at the state of the house that she contacted Tusla. This social worker then met with the parents um, a month later she visited the house. And I think she was so horrified at, at what she was seeing that she then opened cases on all of the children. And, and so it began.
0: Can you tell us how many children are in the family and
1: do we know, know what age they were when the abuse began? We do. Yeah. Um, in terms of how many children are in the family, covering the time frame of the trial between 2014 and 2016, um, the parents had five children, uh, four boys and one girl. The children were aged from as young as one years old to nine years old.
0: You mentioned that social services went to visit the home. What kind of condition
1: were these children in when they started getting involved? Yeah, the the social worker's evidence of what she saw when she went into the house that day, it was stark and and it was almost hard to believe your ears as she was giving evidence. When she was first let into the house by the mother, the first thing she saw was this ancient slice of pizza on the floor and you know, we're not talking mouldy. She said it was it was fossilized. It had been there so long. She said the house was incredibly bare, there were no pictures on the wall, there there wasn't even a TV, there were no toys or anything to indicate that any children were living there, never mind five children. The walls were painted a dark glossy brown, and it emerged at trial that instead of cleaning the walls, the father just kept repainting them in this dark, glossy paint. So it, it was it was very grim. She described these thick, hairy blankets covering almost every surface in the house, which totally baffled her. She didn't know why they were there. She would have suggested a mother to wash them, but they were never cleaned. There were no cleaning materials of any kind whatsoever. We're talking no toilet roll, no shampoo, no shower gel. I think there was one bar of soap in the upstairs bathroom that it was clear to her it, it hadn't been used in a long time. Now, she said it was, you know, the house was deathly quiet, it was desolate, it was bare, It was, but when she went back downstairs, she suddenly noticed this movement from, from under one of the blankets and she discovered that actually the, the youngest little boy had been there all along. This little baby, he was only 18 months at the time, so a toddler, and he was really, really tightly strapped into a small buggy. And she said he was just staring up at her with these big eyes, and saying nothing, his his skin was kind of grey and clammy. She said he was extremely thin and his legs were just like spindly little sticks. And she performed some basic developmental checks on him and, and he made almost no response and, and he hardly had any words. And she said when she lifted up his little chin, she discovered these two thick rings of, of she described as crud and dirt. Obviously just hadn't been washed in, in such a long time. So it was It was after this visit that, that the social worker opened up cases on all of the children and intervention ramped up with social services.
0: We also discovered in the trial that the father had been medicating his children. Why was he doing that and,
1: and what was he giving them? Well, one of the children had a medical condition and was prescribed various medications for it. And one of these was sleep medication, um, melatonin. So one of the neighbours told the trial that almost every evening she would see the father lining the oldest four children up in the garden in the evening and he was doling it out of them and she said that then after he gave them this medication they'd be quiet between six and maybe up to 11 p.m but then the noise would start again it was a very noisy house the neighbor said and the noise would start up again until around two or three a.m the father told social workers eventually that he, he was giving the children the medication to knock them out and to get them to sleep He said he gave the girl the the most because she was the hardest to knock out, so to speak.
0: And when they were removed, the children were split up. So the eldest boy went to one foster home, uh, the eldest girl and the second eldest boy went to another family, and the two youngest boys eventually went to a third. What did the children's foster parents, who gave evidence at the trial, say about the state of the three eldest children when they first took over their care in 2016?
1: Well, the foster parents of these children said they had never seen children in, in such a state. These older children were now aged six, seven and nine. But they didn't know how to use cutlery or toothbrush or toilet roll. They didn't know how to shower or bathe. They had caked feces on their bodies. Uh, Their toenails were growing right under their toe. The boys had never been to a barber. Um, They could not get over the fact that there was food in the kitchen, food in the presses, food in the fridge. The second oldest boy had scarring on his arm and flesh gouged out of his leg, which his foster mother found um, very upsetting. The girl had very little hair, Due to rampant head lice, and she was covered in bruises. The foster mother of this boy and girl said they had huge issues with food. They couldn't identify when they were hungry or control how much they ate. So vomiting was an issue. They used to take food and hide it around the house in case it was taken from them. They couldn't chew properly, so their food had to be chopped up into manageable portions. These two spent their first weeks in their new home in hiding. They were hiding under the stairs, under the hall table, in a hot press. It seems that they hid and they just observed their new surroundings from a safe distance. They had recurring nightmares. One was that the house was in darkness and their parents were were coming to hurt them. Christmas, we don't know why, but Christmas in particular was just a a time of terror and and anxiety for these children, the foster mother said. And that the first three Christmases um, were heartbreaking and exhausting. She said they had to be taught that Christmas was a safe time and a happy time for children. In terms of the oldest boy, um, he appeared to be getting on well in his foster home. Um, but in, in the summer of 2017, he was aged 10 at this point, um, he went missing. He wasn't in his bed in the morning when his foster mother went into him and he had wet the bed and he had wet his pyjamas and his rucksack and his um, electronic tablet were gone. So a search got underway and he was eventually found at eight o'clock that night in, in a wooded area. He was disorientated and he he, he couldn't or, or wasn't able to say where he'd been. Significantly, he was afraid to go out to play after that. Guardi did then seize the tablets of the three older children. Some of them said they'd been in touch with their relatives online, but no evidence was found. And Guardi did actually apply to the US Department of Justice to try and get access to data from places like Facebook, Microsoft, Google. But unfortunately, this application was denied, citing improbable cause. So... There are elements there that we just may never know.
0: What about the two younger boys? How old were they when they were taken into care and, and how did they cope?
1: The younger boys were uh, three and around f- between four and five. They were, again, very thin, very dirty, very quiet. Um, if you remember, the youngest was was the little chap who had been discovered under the blanket. He was extremely underweight. They didn't know how to show affection or how to hug or how to kiss the parents had been asked to pack a bag for all the children, but, but they only had the clothes on their backs. The youngest had no coat. He was whimpering and he was clutching a little teddy that a social worker had given him when he arrived in his foster mother's house. And, you know, like his whole world had been turned upside down, but he went to bed that night in this strange house and just without any complaint, he was, he was unusually quiet and compliant, his foster mother said. He, just, he didn't make a sound all night. And when she found him the next morning, when she popped into him, He was still lying on his back and he was just playing silently with his fingers, she said. She thought, like, he could have just stayed there all day. You know, if I hadn't come into him, he wouldn't have complained or made a sound. This continued for for a good while. He he wouldn't call out if he was even sick or if he wet the bed. She said it was like he didn't know that if he needed help, he could ask for it. He was wary. He was tense. He would creep around the house on tippy toes, she said, and he'd, he'd look around corners before proceeding. And his speech was extremely limited. The second youngest, his speech was also extremely delayed. Um, on his first night, they reported, his foster mother reported, he, he was crying silently and, and tears were just streaming down his cheeks, but there was no sound escaping him. And, and, and she said she'd never seen anything like that before. And he fell asleep on her lap in that state that night. This little boy was described as hypervigilant. Um, at nighttime, he would pretend to be asleep every single night when she was putting him to bed. But then when she checked on him during the night, he jolted awake in terror. And it would take a good 20 minutes to get him back to sleep. So just a a range of issues and and very different issues um, depending on each child. The foster parents also had to install extra security at their homes. Is that right? Why did they do that? The foster mother of the boy and the girl, the second oldest boy and the girl, found them extremely anxious. So as well as having these n- nightmares every night, they, they were afraid to play out in the front garden, even in the garden. If the foster parents were out there with them, they would play happily, no bother. But if the foster parents tried to go back into the house, you know yourself, you know, get a cup of tea, empty the dishwasher, the mm-hmm. children would just fall them right back in. So there was a safety report that was recommended and um, they undertook a number of security measures on their home and they said as soon as that was done, it made a massive difference. They seemed much more secure in themselves. Um, they even engaged better in therapy. So that was their house. But in the house of the two youngest boys, they also installed security measures. But actually, from their point of view, it was more from the parents, the foster parents who were really worried. They had noticed strange cars pulling up near the house with people they didn't know inside. You know, it might be nothing, but they were in constant contact with Guardy about it. And, and they too eventually installed security measures for, for peace of mind.
0: Can you give us, Isabel, uh, some examples of the testimony that witnesses gave in court? You've already spoken about what the social workers said, but there were also teachers
1: and a school principal who spoke, right? Yes, I think we had a number of the children's teachers, the school principal and the deputy principal, all gave evidence. And it was was really evident that they were extremely concerned about the state of the three older children. And they liaised regularly with Tusla um, to try and keep them abreast of what was going on in the family. One teacher who taught the eldest boy described him as being really well behaved, really quiet, really obedient. She said he loved to be praised for his efforts. From her point of view, it was clear that everything was not as it should be at home. I think she said, I never saw a happy little boy in front of me. Another time, um, this is the oldest boy. He arrived at school, but he wouldn't come into his class. And he just, he just lay curled up on the ground in the fetal position. And um, his father and uncle were standing over him and he, he wouldn't talk to them. The teachers sent the men home, but they could, couldn't could coax him out of that position for a long time until I think one of the teachers started chatting to him about a match she'd been at the night before. The girl was described as a lovely little girl um, who was quite confident and she got on well with her peers. But like her brothers, she'd often arrive in school in a dirty state. One day, one of the teachers of the little girl noticed she had vomit on her jacket and she pointed this out to the mother and, you know, just spoke to her about hygiene and that but that vomit stain just remained on the jacket for the next couple of weeks. Um, I think another time the father brought his daughter to school, she was in a really distressed state and she had a cut lip. Um, And the father told the teacher all she she found on the way to school, but then he also told the girl, that'll teach you not to do it again. And the teacher found that really alarming.
0: At a certain point, the older children started to reveal that they had suffered sexual abuse. Now, I I will note that there are restrictions on what can be reported about this abuse. But when did they start talking about this? And what do we know about what happened?
1: I think the foster parents of the older boy said, I think it was about a year in that, you know, he started opening up and talking to them about his life in his childhood home. And I think it was first came out as physical abuse, but then it became clear that it also involved sexual abuse. Once this occurred, they immediately got onto to and he and then his brother and sister were interviewed by specialist Gardaí. The children all identified their parents, their mother's sister, uh, her husband, and then their mother's brother as having sexually abused them.
0: And after these five children were taken into care with foster parents, their biological mother had a sixth child. She had a daughter. What do we know about that baby?
1: Yes, the year after the five children were taken into care, the mother gave birth to a sixth child, a little girl. And this was a concealed pregnancy. She hid it from social workers who were still liaising with the family. She didn't get any medical care up until the last few weeks. Her husband told Gardy he didn't know she was pregnant up until she gave birth. She gave birth in the sitting room. I think the uncle, uh, one of the co-accused, helps deliver the baby. It was a, a bit of a, a moment in the trial when the father told Gardy in his interview, I, I don't remember the name, she put on that child. And, and this baby was also taken into care shortly after her birth. The trial is taking place in a temporary courtroom at Croke Park, which is being used by the court service because of social distancing requirements. Over the next eight weeks, the jury will hear evidence from Garthi, social workers, teachers and neighbours about how concerns were raised about the children both before and after they were taken into foster care in 2016. So this
0: trial was heard last summer, 2021. How long did it eventually run for and what kind of charges were brought against the adults involved?
1: The trial ran for 10 weeks and heard from over 30 witnesses. There were 78 counts on the indictment by the end of the trial and each of the five accused were found guilty on all but one count, um, which was a count of sexual assault relating to the 27-year-old uncle against his niece. The charges against the father included... Uh, rape, anal rape, sexual assault, sexual exploitation, permitting other people to engage in sexual activity with a child, willful neglect, and mistreating his children by medicating them. The mother was accused of sexual assault, sexual exploitation, again permitting other people to engage in sexual activity with a child, and willful neglect. Their aunt, who is 35, was charged with three counts of sexual assault of two of the children. Her husband, who is 49, was found guilty of 10 counts, including rape, sexual assault and sexual exploitation. And then the children's 27-year-old uncle was found guilty of eight counts, including rape, sexual assault and sexual exploitation.
0: So what kind of arguments did the defence team for the parents and these other family
1: members put forward in relation to these charges? The credibility of the children's evidence was at the core of much of the defence case pertaining to the sexual abuse charges. For instance, the barrister defending the father pointed out that there was no supporting evidence to the children's allegations. You know, there was there was no one else who actually witnessed sexual abuse occur. So in other words, it was their words against his. Another barrister, defence barrister, said that the children's evidence in relation to the sexual assault allegations had all the hallmarks of a childish muddled up imagination. There was criticism of the specialist Garda interviewers and their techniques A number of defence also relied on the fact that at no stage did social workers express any suspicion that sexual abuse might be going on in the family home. The children were removed from the family home on the grounds of chronic neglect alone. So, you know, defence are saying there's a mini army of professionals who have access to this house. The family home is under a microscope, yet no one saw or suspected this was occurring. In relation to the willful neglect charges against the parents, no one attempted to deny that the children were living in these abjectly terrible conditions. I mean, how could you, you know, when you've heard all the evidence from the social worker. But what the prosecution had to prove was that this neglect was deliberate. And there were reports in court that the parents had intellectual deficits. So from the defence point of view, they were saying, look, maybe they just weren't able to cope.
0: How long did the jury take to decide the verdicts in this case, as well?
1: The jury took, I think, about five days from memory. It was around 18 hours deliberations. And they were a very interesting jury in terms of, you know, even from much shorter cases, you'd normally have juries during the deliberation process popping in and out, looking. They'll have questions, understandably, about the evidence they've heard. They often want to review testimony that was seen or watch videos again that they were shown so, you know, we all assumed this is going to be a very long, drawn-out process. And it, it certainly was. The jury deliberated for a long time. But they they didn't ask a single question in terms of the evidence. They they seemed to, you know, have all their ducks in a row and they seemed to be happy enough to trash it out themselves. At the end, they did ask, uh I think, some questions about the neglect charges. So it seems, you know, this is just conjecture, but you it seems that perhaps the defence their point about, you know, whether the parents were deliberately neglecting the children might have been a sticking point for the jury. But yes, as we know, these these kind of deliberations stay in the jury room.
0: So the family members were finally sentenced. How
1: long are they going to serve for these crimes? The father was jailed for 15 years um, and the mother was jailed for nine years. The two uncles were jailed for 15 years and the aunt for three years. The judge said that, you know. The mother would would got a lesser sentence because the offences that she committed, they were not in the most serious category like the men in the family. So we're talking sexual assault as opposed to rape. In terms of how long they will serve, like anyone, they'll be entitled to remission for good behaviour when they have served three quarters of their sentence. The judge said he had considered making the sentences consecutive. He handed down a number of sentences for each crime, but he concluded that this would result in wholly disproportionate sentences for each of them. He said he'd also considered suspending part of their sentences handed down, but he noted it was just difficult to see how any of the offenders could engage in rehabilitation, given that they continue to reject the jury's verdicts and maintain their innocence.
0: Isabel, how old are the eldest children now? And they released impact statements from those children, didn't they?
1: They did. Um, The oldest boy is a teenager, and the, the second children are entering their teenage years. The oldest boy wrote a victim impact statement He said that um, what happened at home changed his whole life. He said, what happened to me and my brothers and sisters should never have happened to no child. I'm trying to get over what happened for years. He said, hopefully with the new family I have, I'll soon be able to put it all behind me. He said, I never knew until I came to my new family what a normal life is like. I'm clean and I'm happy and I'm never hungry and not afraid to go to sleep. He said, I think my old family should go to jail for a long time for what they put my brothers and sisters through. And he also said they should not be near children again. His younger brother and sister just wrote two lines each. She said, they ruined my childhood and didn't even care about me. I wasn't loved when I was younger. And her younger brother said, I don't feel safe about them not being in prison. I had no happy childhood.
0: Do you think, Isabel, after everything you've heard with this case,
1: that they can move forward from all this? It's difficult to say, um, And the foster parents had varying levels of of hope um, in terms of that. But, you know, one thing is clear. These foster parents are absolutely amazing people and they are determined to give these children the best shot at the most normal life they possibly can. There is literally nothing they are not doing by the sounds of things to really ensure that these children recover from their traumatic early childhood. I mean, when you look at the sheer list of professionals that they have brought in for these children... It just goes on and on, you know, speech and language therapists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, eye specialists, dentists, orthodontists, psychotherapists, play therapists, neuropsychologists, attachment specialists, even a burns specialist, plastic surgeon consultant. Mr. Justice Paul McDermott, he really summed it up when he said, you know, they, they took these children into their homes and their families. They could never have anticipated how hurt and damaged they were by what they'd been put through or how much care and support and professional help they'd need. But he said, you know, they really do appear to be thriving under their care.
0: Isabel, thank you so much for your time. Coming up, after years of traumatic abuse, will these children be able to rebuild normal lives? When we hear about cases of neglect and sexual abuse within families, like the Munster case, it raises an uncomfortable question. Is it possible for the victims to recover and go on
2: to live normal lives? Yeah, so it's a question many people ask. I suppose the first thing to say on it is reading something like this, it's quite shocking. And I think the sexual abuse seems to be a piece that stands out to most people as the most horrific part. And I suppose sometimes neglect and emotional abuse is overlooked and actually it can be what has the most detrimental impact.
0: Tarek is a therapeutic social worker who specialises in helping children who have experienced trauma.
2: We consider their needs when we think about developmental trauma. So that's trauma not occurring as a one-off incident. It's very different. So it occurs within their primary caregiving relationships. So the people that should be protecting and keeping children safe were unable to do that. And I suppose consistently unmet their children's needs. For children who, from a very young age, their needs are unmet, they think of themselves as unworthy, unlovable of care. Some of them may, you know, stop trying to have their needs met. And I think in this case, in some of the victim impact statements, we did read from foster carers about children not crying out or, you know, lying in cots silent. And I suppose, unfortunately, that's something that we hear about a lot.
0: And these children in Munster, they've had a horrific start in life based on what we've learned from the trial. And we're not going to speak specifically about their situation, but more generally, when looking at children that you've worked with in similar situations, what are the long-term effects of the kind of abuse that they've suffered?
2: That type of trauma, I suppose, it, it's basically an assault on all facets of a child's development. There is a disproportionate impact between zero to three years. And sometimes we forget about that. We think when children are in in, a, in an abusive situation or neglectful situation between zero to three That, oh well, they'll be okay, they won't remember. But their body remembers, their senses remember. So I suppose for all of the children, even after they are received into care and into a place of safety that we as adults, you know, know is safe, they don't necessarily feel safe. It takes a long time for them to feel safe. I suppose their bodies have had to be on alert and their systems and their development on alert for so long that they're wired for danger, I suppose. So what they need, you know, absolutely they can do well in the aftermath of developmental trauma, but Sometimes there's a misconception that, oh, well, some therapy will support this. And actually, it's a whole system that needs to be supported. So they need safety is their primary need. They need safe relationships that needs to be in school. On social workers they work with, their foster carers will need significant support because it involves therapeutic parenting as opposed to more traditional parenting approaches. And I suppose the impact at different stages of development will be different for each child. So depending on when they experience the trauma and at what stage of development. But certain milestones can be difficult or certain developmental um, changes for children. So, for example, starting school, we expect children to be able to do certain things. And actually, if they're still in their survival brain and not feeling safe, it's going to be very difficult for them to be in school. Similarly, teenage years going on to, you know, form intimate relationships, childbirth can be really triggering. So, yes, children absolutely can do okay, but they need a therapeutic web of support around them. And not just on there's a perception that it's until the age of 18. It needs to go on beyond that to break the cycle, really.
0: We've heard that these children have been placed with very supportive and loving foster families. Would that give you hope looking into their future that there is a possibility for another chance at life for this family.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean when someone has experienced this level of trauma, it's it's always there. But that's there is a very hopeful picture in that with um support around them, with I suppose I refer to it as a therapeutic web. So it's not just about supporting the child, it's about supporting their foster carers to respond to them in the best way they can. It's about supporting their school teachers. They're social workers. We are, you know, social workers, there's huge under-resourcing of social workers in this country. And sometimes they're, it's very difficult for them to build relationships with the children given the shortages there. And really for these children, the more positive experiences of safe relationships that they can have, the more positive an outcome there will be for these children. So it's certainly not a case of They cannot heal from this. They can, but it will ebb and flow. There will be changes over time. People need to be tolerant that these children will regress at points to move forward again. I suppose that is the nature of developmental trauma and why it's so unique to one-off traumatic incidences. And I suppose it's further complicated for these children in that they have given evidence against their parents and that can come up in different ways and be very complex for children. And also we have to remember, albeit horrific abuse and they were unsafe in the care of their family members, it's a loss for them as well. It's the definition of complicated grief um, for these children. So it's, you know, it involves very sensitive and careful navigating um for the duration of their childhoods, but absolutely they're always hope for children and indeed adults who have experienced this type of abuse. Tara, thank you so much.
0: That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Isabel Hayes and Tara Kyo. Today's episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.